I hope it's safe to say that no one who works in healthcare intends to be rude or non-communicative or hasty or impatient with patients. But let's face it, these things happen and far too frequently. In fact, often the provider or staff member has no idea they've offended a patient. They're in such a hurry and have moved on to the next thing. And organizations may not have a clue what's transpired unless a patient or a family member makes a complaint or a patient family advisory council catches wind of something or something shows up in a patient satisfaction survey. So how do you capture and draw attention to these experiences? And if you start tracking incidents and label them emotional harm done to patients, does that help reduce these experiences? Does it cast the seriousness of the offenses and slights in a new light? So Patricia Focarelli is a nurse who has worked at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center for the past 28 years in a variety of clinical and leadership roles. She is currently the Interim Vice President for Healthcare Quality, and over the past 10 years, she's been responsible for patient safety, risk management, and patient relations. Welcome, Pat. Thank you. All right. Lauga Sokol Hessner is a hospitalist at BIDMC. He's at Pat's side right now. He's the Associate Director for Inpatient Quality. He's a leader in a number of projects and I think has been on WIHI and other calls here multiple times. He's working on things like the practice of respect, conversation ready at BIDMC. Welcome, Lauga. Thank you for having us. All right, Erica Dent. Uh, and if it's Dente, please tell me, has been a patient family advisor at BIDMC since 2010. She has served on the Intensive Care Unit, excuse me, Patient Family Advisory Council on the Employee Critical Care Experience Task Force, Conversation Ready, and Respect and Dignity Working Groups. You've been busy, Erica. So glad you're part of today's program. Welcome. And how did, how did I do with the pronunciation of your last name? It's Dente. Thank you for okay. including me. Okay, all right, very good. So glad you're here. And last but never least, we have our own Frank Federico. He's an IHI Vice President working in the areas of patient safety, application of reliability principles in healthcare, preventing surgical complications, and improving perinatal care. Welcome, Frank. Thank you, Madge, and good day, everyone. All right, so we're going to turn right to Pat. And Pat, uh, I want to ask you, why did BIDMC decided there needed to be a new effort to draw attention to uh, what must be familiar in, to a lot of people on the call today, that patients do have experiences where they feel disrespected or a loss of dignity? And I'm curious if at BIDMC you were getting more complaints or you were finding out that your existing mechanisms to address these issues just were proving to be insufficient. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for that introduction, Madge. Um, our journey, this has really been a journey for us. Um, back in about 2007 here at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, we, our board and our senior leadership team uh, established a goal that we wanted to eliminate all preventable harm. Um, at that time, and for the, really for the first seven years of our journey, we were considering all just physical harm. We defined the harms that we were focused on as physical injuries resulting from or contributed to by medical care that resulted in prolonged hospitalization or hospitalization 
or resulted in permanent injury. And for each of those harm events, we assessed whether or not we could have prevented them. And for our own learning, we assessed preventability considering two different uh, questions. One is, did, we, did the injury result from a failure to provide care to the existing standard? But we added in another part of that, which was that was there a reasonable adaptation to the existing standard of care that we were delivering that could be introduced that would reliably prevent the event from happening in the future? And being very rigorous about that over time helped us to reduce physical harms over time. At the same time, our, structural organiza our organizational structure in our Department of Healthcare Quality includes not only the staff that do all of the patient safety reviews, but the patient relations staff are all part of the same department. And we were highly focused on the physical harms and reducing the physical harms, having great successes in those areas. Um, but we were realizing that we had some opportunity to maybe apply that to the same, um, to the cases that we were hearing about of our patients' experience. Uh, we, we had been on a journey like many of the call, people on the call, I'm sure, about transparently sharing the events that were happening related to physical harm with our community internally as well as externally, considering all of those events uh, with a just culture lens. And using that, we were able to actually make some signal out of noise. And get, we got fairly good at this. So imagine that every year we would be hearing upwards of about 7,000 events reported to our patient safety department. We were able to do deep analysis of uh, about 150 of those a year. And in those, there was a signal where there was a significant number of patients, so on average still probably about 40 a year, for whom they had a physical harm event that we believe was preventable. So with that muscle memory, we started to think about, well, what about our, the experience that our patients were having? And you'll see on the next slide that there are some quotes that were from the calls coming to patient relations. Um, things like, I had such a bad experience at your hospital that I'm going to actually have my next surgery somewhere else. Or, I'm calling you to tell you about my experience because I love your hospital, but I do not want what happened to me to happen to anyone else. So we really said, could we take stock and begin to look at our patient experience events with the same rigor as we were looking at our physical harm events. And to give you a nice example, I'm going to turn it over to Erica. Uh, our patient family advisor who's worked with us on this journey and has some personal experience that she'd like to share. Thanks. Thank you, Pat. Um, so I'm a longstanding patient at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, um, and uh, one of my providers at Beth Israel Deaconess, uh, who uh, is an allergist, referred me to an, a neighboring institution because I have uh, complex medication allergies, and it was just becoming too complex. And um, the when I went over to the neighboring institution, um, it was decided that it was in my best interest to keep my allergy care at the other institution. Um, so what that means is every time I need an antibiotic, I need to go into the intensive care unit to be desensitized to prevent anaphylaxis. Um, and so one of the times I was in the intensive care unit at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, um, I uh, encountered um, a nurse and a provider that um, was not experienced in um, desensitizing um, me to um, this particular um, protocol, and it was getting 
very difficult for um, them, and they were getting frustrated, naturally, um, because it was taking so long, and it was obviously taking um, time away from patients that were very sick. Um, but it, I, they start saying, why are you here if your provider is over at the other institution? Why aren't you just going to get desensitized at the other institution? And so I felt like a burden, and it was humiliating, and it was also felt at that point I was feeling unsafe. If they don't know how to do this, am I going to anaphylax? Um, after the experience, um, I spoke with a nurse uh, at the hospital at Beth Israel who put me in touch with the clinical pharmacist um, in charge of all the desensitization protocols at Beth Israel. Um, he and I met, and I gave him all the protocols that I had, and he assured me that um, he would put my protocols into the system so that the next time I was admitted for desensitization, it would go much smoother. I would say probably two weeks after uh, I met with him, I received a call from him. He actually took it one step further. He went and he spoke with the new allergist at the other institution, and um, after the conversation, he, real, they, he realized and decided that actually the protocols I was currently receiving were actually safer. And so he actually changed the whole protocol system at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center so that it was safe for all patients, and all patients would get the best care possible. Um, so that's my story, and I'd like to turn it now back to Lauga. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Erica. Appreciate it. We'll hear from you some more. Um, Lauga, so how, um, how does it work? How do you learn about incidents and what do you do with the information? I have a feeling that a lot of folks on the call may be interested in some of this blocking and tackling, so thanks. Yeah, thanks, Madge. I think that's, that's exactly what we realized we needed to do when we started to hear and um, more about stories like Erica's where there was an experience that um, was a complex uh, system failure because of um, the way the system was designed, not by bad intent of individuals. We realized, you know, this is, a, this is something we need to think about carefully. So we formed a large interdisciplinary working group. Um, on the next slide you can see there are quite a few different groups that were represented there. Uh, I'll call attention to uh, the last item on the list there, the patient family advisors. Uh, folks like Erica have been part of this work from the beginning. And we sat down and we started thinking about these sorts of events, um, these non-physical harm events, and asked, well, what can we do to begin to conceptualize these and how can we build some structure around them? And we decided that the concepts of dignity and respect would be good ways to do that. Uh, and did some searching through the literature and uh, had some great discussions and came up with these uh, fairly straightforward definitions that you see on the screen there. Dignity being the recognition that each person has intrinsic, unconditional value just by virtue of being a human, and that respect of the, the actions that we as a system and as individuals take towards them that protect, preserve, and enhance their dignity, and that we have an ethical and a moral obligation as a healthcare system and as healthcare professionals to always treat our patients with respect and dignity. Uh, so with that frame, uh, we uh, then developed our approach that we are using now um, and have for a couple years where we, uh, when one of these events happens, first we make sure that we are caring for those involved in the event. So like in Erica's story, um, making sure that we communicate proactively, we apologize when necessary, we work to try and resolve 
the harm event as much as possible, um, and uh, that we also support the uh, clinicians or other health professionals that were involved. And then that we try and learn from them so that we can prevent those from happening again in the future. To do that, we have to capture those events. We have to know that they're happening. Uh, there are a couple different ways that we learn about them. The most common way is that we get calls or emails to our patient relations department, just the way that we hear about 7,000 or so adverse events, uh, physical harms a year. We hear about several thousand um, non-physical harm events uh, through our patient relations department, a number I think is similar to any institution of, of uh, related size. And then um, we also hear through our adverse event reporting system, we use a system that happens to be called RL6. Uh, there are many others out there. Um, it's the way that people report falls or medication problems or uh, whatever harms might occur, and we created a way to res report respect and dignity events. You can see the handshake icon. People can click on that and fill out a report. Once we capture those events, then we analyze them. Um, we have an interdisciplinary group that Pat leads that uh, thinks about how severe was this event, which allows us to focus our resources on the, on the most pressing issues. We also begin to categorize them so we can begin to identify themes, and I'll share some of that categorization with you in a little bit. Um, and then we uh, dive deep and try and understand the causes of those events. What was it that led to that happening? What were the contributing factors? And uh, what could we do to prevent that, that harm from happening again? Are our existing standards adequate? Do we need new standards? Then we share and discuss those cases at a number of meetings. We have um, a quality improvement directors meeting, we call it, where a representative from each department of the hospital is present, and we discuss these cases every couple weeks. We also prevent them, present them to a, a board-level committee called the Patient Care Assessment Committee. And then um, after that, I think a really important piece is not just to understand the event, but really to make proactive changes to prevent future ones. And uh, the accountability for those changes lies in, in at least two places. One is with the individuals who are involved in the event, if there's behavior that um, could be improved. Um, we apply just culture, as Pat described, in those situations, um, treating people, uh, our own employees and our health professionals here with respect, uh, and our leaders, uh, thinking about how do we design our systems, how is our IT system designed, um, do we need to improve our procedures or our pro protocols or policies, as was the case in Erica's example, um, and often working closely with our Patient Family Advisory Council, our PFAC members, um, like Erica to do that work. Um, and I think that uh, that really is the learning process that we've, we've developed. And on the next slide, what you can see is a screenshot of the dashboard that we use to communicate about those sorts of harm events. This is BIDMC's entire preventable harm scorecard or dashboard. Um, you'll see, and I know it's small font, but you'll see quite a few different types of harm events. The ones at the top tend to be all physical harm events related to uh, medical management or infection nosocomial um, infections, for instance, or falls. And at the bottom, you'll notice these dignity and respect related events. And we provide counts of actual events, not a rate, but a count. Um, and we've begin, begun to categorize them a bit here. And I think when I see this, what I, what I think is so cool about it is that um, we are uh, talking about these harm events on the same playing field as we're talking about all the other ones. Um, and what we're finding is, as I think you can see from the numbers there, that there's a, a complex and large bucket around communication. Um, there are a number of events around the environment of care um, and as relates to privacy, for instance. Um, care after death refers to uh, how we manage autopsy results, how we work with families to minimize um, complicated bereavement. 
um, and care for personal possessions has to do with um, the uh, unintentional loss of invaluable uh, personal possessions such as an heirloom wedding ring that is uh, uh, kept safe during surgery, but we actually uh, misplace it by mistake. And so I think uh, this really is uh, a, a summation, I guess, of, of how we've been doing this uh, work at BI, and it's, it's, as Pat described, been quite a journey. Let me ask you a, a question uh, as I look and as others perhaps look at this uh, dashboard here. Do you think that this is a pretty, well, speaking around the emotional harm incidents, um, as with many things, these are the things you're hearing about. Do you feel that there are more of uh, incidents, in fact, uh, than is reflected here? Absolutely. This is Pat. I yes. think that you know, when, I, when we talk about the reporting of physical harm events, um, you know, I think the common thing that people say is that that probably represents only maybe 10 to tops 20% of the events that patients experience that are physical harm. And I feel like you, we should think about these events in exactly the same way, that the, these are the ones that we know about because the patient was able to find patient relations and voice their concern, not feel intimidated about doing that. Um, I know that our patient relations staff, to be quite honest with you, are all, all speak English. So we have to think about how do we make inroads into our, our more underserved communities. We, um, we hear about only some of the events being reported by our staff. And I, uh, so, I, so this is a long answer to your very short question where I feel like this is the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, uh, the experience that patients and families are having at, in healthcare now. Okay, thank you. Um, one other little question, and then maybe Erica will turn to her next, and then Frank Federico. I'm also curious to what extent, uh, maybe, uh, John, we can go back and look at the uh, chart again, um, to what extent some of, uh, you know, perception uh, and that some folks might say uh, disrespectful communication, um, and I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm really just trying to kind of unpack this a little bit, um, are these are some of these things misunderstandings, and does that even matter? Um, in other words, you know, to what extent are you trying to sort out uh, this really does meet the threshold of disrespectful, and this other thing, well, maybe that was, you know, somebody being overly sensitive. Yeah, Madge, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it, and um, it is an important piece of context for for looking at this scorecard. What we do with any harm event, whether it's a physical harm event or one of these emotional ones, is that we look at them carefully and we ask um, uh, two questions. One is, uh, from the patient or family perspective, how severe was this event? You know, sometimes um, patients suffer a lot of harm from a particular injury, and other times they don't. Um, so we ask that question. We also ask the question, uh, what do we as an institution uh, feel about this event and the risk of it happening again and causing future harm? As we know, there are sometimes near misses or events where it's fortunate nobody got hurt, but it represents a real risk for future patients. And we consider both of those perspectives when we identify these events. And the ones that you're seeing on this dashboard are ones where we feel not only was there a significant harm to the patient or family, but there's also a significant risk of that harm happening again. It's particularly important that we prevent that harm. All harms are important, but these are the are really very severe ones that we are taking and then moving forward in the process. 
Um, I think that allows us to focus on events where there's consensus uh, that something bad has happened and we need to try and prevent it and not worry so much uh, uh, for now about the events where there's maybe a little bit more uh, leeway in, in perception. Okay, thanks very much. Appreciate that. Questions are coming in. So uh, that's great. We'll get to those in just uh, some minutes here. Erica, Dente, I want to come back to you. And um, I guess I'm curious uh, how important this work uh, and this identification and surfacing all this seems to you as a patient family advisor. And I had written down, has it proven to be a game changer, uh, given that you've had such a, a, a rich history of working on things at BIDMC? How, how would you, uh, call, what would you call this uh, effort now? Um, does, does it seem to represent something really, really different and powerful? Um, I, I'm actually thrilled, um, and when I was first asked to be part of this, um, I was truly elated. Um, being involved in some of the um, committees and groups with other PFAC members, often what sticks out is they got exceptional care, and um, there may have been um, a physical injury that they recovered from, but it's always the, um, long, the, the emotional um, harm. Um, or perceived emotional harm that always lingers and lasts the longest. And I think um, that, you know, respect and dignity is probably one of the most basic human needs um, and desires. And I don't think that changes when somebody's ill or in the hospital. In fact, I think it goes, grows stronger. And um, so the fact that Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center recognized this um, and uh, realized that it's the difference between good care and exceptional care. And um, bringing this back to even the, um, some of the PFAC uh, groups, they are equally as thrilled. Okay, thank you very much. Well, I really appreciate this, uh, now that we've laid this out. So Frank, Federico, this is work that you're very familiar with and um, in different ways, IHI uh, and you in particular may be getting more involved with. what. How does it strike you, uh, also as somebody who's been working on this journey around safety for quite a while and uh, trying to bring uh, the patient experience more integrated into these areas? Um, is it important that we're calling this, or BIDMC is calling this emotional harm? Thank you, Matt. Yes, and it is so important. Uh, before I go on, though, I do want to acknowledge that uh, in my experience, both while at IHI and when I worked at Risk Management Foundation, I had lots of opportunities to interact with the folks at BIDMC, with Pat and others, and I just want to congratulate them on taking on what they've done to improve safety at their organization as well as now breaking the barrier around managing disrespect and making sure that people are respected for who they are and considering it a serious harm because for the longest time um, it was not considered and maybe a little bit of history would help there too. Uh, recently at the National Forum and then again on a podcast, uh, Derek Feely and Don Berwick really challenged us to think differently about safety. And uh, what they did was they included the discussion around that, system, that safety is a systems property. And we heard just from the BI folks how when they investigate these events, they think of them as a system property. That is what contributed, how can we fix the system to make it better? And secondly, Derek challenged us to include both uh, 
disrespect and inequity as patient harms. And I think that it has come to the time where we need to expand that target around what is harm and what is the patient experiencing. At IHI, when we developed our IHI Global Trigger Tool, we purposely focused only on acts of commission, that is something that we did that caused the patient to have that experience. We avoided emotional or psychological harm because we think we thought at that time, and I believe at that time it was correct, we were challenging the field enough because we were including preventable and non-preventable harms. We were using different tools to collect that information, and it was becoming overwhelming with the number of the harm events that were being identified. So we thought, let's just chip away at what we know we can and then figure out how to add different things. And I think the time is just right that when Beth Israel took this on to say it's important that we go beyond the infections and those other experiences the patient has and include patient harm, disrespect as a patient harm, we are now entering a new era, a new way of looking at the patient experience as a whole. And it's that's the kind of work that I think needs to be done going forward. Now, knowing what I know about the work we've done in the past, there are going to be challenges. Um, the folks at BI Deaconess Medical Center have some definitions. They've already started looking at what uh, you can be looking at to gain that information. And Pat rightfully said there's probably many more events that we just don't know about. But at least let's start working with the ones that we know and figure out how to do the rest. What strikes me is that the conditions that result in disrespect are so varied. There are so many things that could be contributing to it, and some of it just may be lack of understanding or lack of appreciation. However, in the, the Joint Commission is also interested in this topic and in presenting to them and sharing with them this is a new opportunity for us to be looking. I uncovered that there are so many things that happen, so many systems issues, and so many experiences for our staff that contribute to disrespect. And, and that doesn't mean that these people don't care, but poor bedside manner that unless you realize you have poor bedside manner, you may be disrespecting people and not even realizing it, or arrogance, or failure to listen to the patient. How many times do clinicians say, we're really busy, I don't have time to listen? Uh, dismissal of the patient's fears, oh, you'll be okay. Uh, rudeness. When I presented this during one of our patient safety officer development program, um, I had lots of interest from the participants. One participant actually said, it's not always appropriate to smile to a patient. She had experienced a very sad news, and as she was walking down the hallway with her daughter, somebody smiled and said, oh, welcome to our hospital, and she said, that's the last thing I wanted. So the challenge is, how do you know? How do you know how to apply? How do you know when to think about what is the right process? Because what's respectful to another may be disrespectful to someone else. And I think foundationally, if we want to encourage and get our patients to be respected, we have to respect our staff. And we heard that already, that in their investigations, they are respectful of their staff and trying to understand what really happened. And unless we respect our staff in all ways, and the Lucian Leap Institute has got a wonderful white paper on that, I think that it'll be difficult for us to really address this problem in an effective way. Okay. Thank you very much, Frank. I really appreciate that. And thank you all for the questions. Uh, that are pouring in. Um, John, just to remind everybody, uh, good, good, uh, 
good practices for uh, chatting in here. Yep, please make sure that your questions and comments are addressed to all participants when you uh, type in down in the chat bar. Okay. Thanks, everyone. All right, I'm uh, trying to link some of the questions together. There are many, and they're very, very good, and uh, also uh, see if I can't get at some themes. So one is uh, uh, for uh, Pat and Lauga, whether your increased monitoring is actually leading to more reporting and or are incidents actually, this is referring to emotional harm increasing, uh, there are, there's a small or there is some uh, uptick in disrespectful communication in particular uh, that somebody noted. And um, let's, let's tackle that first and then let's tackle this issue that has come up a few times and you have spoken about which is uh, how has this um, actually opened up um, some more discussion about how staff feel they're treated by one another? Mm -hmm. Those are both very great questions. So, yeah. it, it is, this is Pat, it is the, um, it's, we are seeing more reporting, but it's from our staff, you know, into that um, patient safety system. So, the, the amount of patient-related huh. activity is, pr is pretty stable. Okay. Um, not getting better, not getting much worse, but the, we have enabled our staff to report, so the increases in reporting are related to our staff reporting witnessed disrespectful treatment. But the second part of your question is related to staff-to-staff -staff disrespect. And so that you, when you saw that icon that we have in our reporting system, it just says respect and dignity. And so we're seeing all sorts of respect, disrespectful things being reported in there. So interpersonal um, issues, disrespectful interactions between clinicians or among clinicians, disrespectful interactions between or among clinicians in front of patients. Um, and so we're building out systems. We're calling this whole piece of work the practice of respect because we recognized from the beginning that once we started to talk about this, we were going to have to be, be uh, listening and attentive and building out systems for our staff that feel as if they're being disrespected uh, in these reports by each other, but also um, in conjunction with some work that we're doing around workplace violence, thinking about building up our um, infrastructure to be supportive of staff who feel they're being disrespected from patients and families. So it's mm -hmm. all part of one, I think once you put your toe in this and you're very, um, you're, you're, you're embarking on this, you need to be prepared that this is a total Beth Israel Deaconess experience. It's the total experience that we're considering, but what we're talking about today is largely the, um, the patient's experience as reported to us. But um, yes. it's, those yes. are very good questions. You need to be Thank prepared. You. <laughs> and and somebody is asking um, just this is kind of gets at the kind of analysis uh, of of what you're seeing, wondering what type of drill down you've done on disrespectful behavior. Are you linking it to particular staff, providers, provider behaviors, patient types, or any contributing factors or circumstances? Yeah, this is, that is loud. That's yeah. a great too. Um, you know, I think one of the, the most interesting things that we've found and, and one of the most important for us to realize has been that um, the vast majority of these events uh, do not reflect poor behavior by individuals. They reflect system-level problems. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think um, we haven't done a lot of uh, identifying 
themes with respect to individuals. We, re we have been more trying to understand at an institution level what are the themes uh, about how our systems are designed that we need to be working on. Um, as you might imagine, these events uh, can be very complex with a lot of contributing factors. And um, so I think I would say we're at the, at the beginning stages of learning how, to, how most effectively to categorize them so that we can um, uh, best uh, prevent future harms. I think one of the approaches that we've found valuable so far has been to ask, does this event represent a theme that we've noticed before? Is it in a particular aspect of care like pain management or uh, periprocedural scheduling or whatever it might be? And then is there a group or a, a part of our institution that's already working on that issue? And could we inform them of this event, help them understand our analysis so that as they're doing their work to improve whatever the topic might be, like periprocedural scheduling or pain management or whatever, they have this experience to inform that work. And that, in, in that way, I, I think we um, are, are, are able to be most efficient and also hopefully most effective with what can be very powerful individual stories of, of harm events. Uh -huh. Somebody has also asked whether or not you, um, it, it's not so much reflected here on, on your grid, but whether or not, maybe John, we could show that one again. Are you looking at severity of emotional harm or attempting to sort of um, code that in any way, and that seems to relate to another question, uh, at least comes up for me, uh, would you include in emotional harm somebody uh, who was not perhaps well informed about, uh, say, risks of a procedure? I think this person used the example of somebody who uh, didn't realize that there might be some collateral damage or disfigurement or something like that. Uh, I don't know if that flips into yet a whole other category. No, I mean, I think that the, those are two, two uh, very important points. So we laugh when we, tell, when we think about our severity scales. We have a highly scientific severity scale where we, we consider whether they're mild, moderate, or severe. And, um, this, it, it, and, and I'm happy to share that um, language, and I think it's in one of the papers that are listed on the slide deck. But you know a severe case when you see it. Um, I think these are cases where patients are, or families are saying that they want, they're going to take their care elsewhere, or um, they're not saying that, but as a person who works in a hospital, these are the ones that catch your, make you catch your breath when you hear about them. Um, so they're, that's how we grade them. Um, the other thing, the second part of the question is, was related to a specific kind of case where um, it sounds like it's, it would be an unhappy patient because of an outcome uh, where maybe they, were, they did not have a full informed consent. And within that communication category that you see there, one of, our, one of the subcategories is a failure to communicate with patient about an adverse event. Um, so we would consider this, um, uh, that level of communication and try to dive down on how that patient's uh, informed consent happened. Um, this, all of this ties together with our efforts to be much more transparent with patients when things go wrong generally. Um, we, it fits in with our early resolution program, so it's all kind of tied together in terms of trying to be more radically um, open with our patients and families. So. Um, I'm happy to share the severity scale, but it's the kind of thing where you know it when you see it, that it's severe. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Thank you. 
Um, Erica, I, I, maybe I will ask you this question. Somebody is wondering, um, I would be interesting from sort of the patient uh, perspective, whether uh, more clinicians are feeling rushed or patient ex expectations <laughs> are changing, uh, things people might have sort of put up with, they're not. Uh, and that kind of relates also to another question that came in or a comment about wondering about different cultural norms and expectations and realizing that that can be a factor too. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, but let, let's maybe start with that uh, first question. Uh, do you think patient expectations are changing? Well, I think it's multifactorial. I think that patients uh, are a much more educated consumer, um, and so I think that um, they're they're more a little bit more savvy. Um, and I'm not. I don't think that their expectations are necessarily too high. With that, I also think that there are higher and higher demands on providers, and um, I think sometimes it can be a recipe for a disaster. But if you sit and talk with your provider, um, I think, and let them know how you're feeling. If, you know, if you're feeling rushed, you, you know, I'm feeling rushed, I need to get to X, Y, and Z. I think for the most part, they're going to take a step back and listen. Um, or maybe if, if you're at an appointment and they just don't have, to t have the time at that moment, you're going to have to set up another appointment, but let them be aware why you, why you want another appointment. So I think it's, it's twofold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, thanks. Um, question, I guess, uh, for Pat and Lauga, do you feel that this work, so I don't know how, I'm trying to think, a couple years worth of solid work on this, at least on the emotional harm piece of it, um, to what extent do you feel that surfacing this is actually helping uh, improve uh, the situation? Uh, how and how are you tracking that? Yeah, that's a great question, Madge. I think. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, to paraphrase other people, you know, the, the concept of a journey or a, um, the arc of improvement is is uh, <laughs> slow, but arcs towards improvement. <laughs> yeah, um, uh -huh. it, it really is that. I think what, what we, uh, I, I think my takeaway so far from this work has been that we have uncovered an area that had been um, unintentionally neglected. And by bringing some rigor to that um, and working towards more rigor and more structure, we, uh, we are beginning a, a long process of improvement. Um, I think with some of the harm events that we've uncovered, we've been able to start to put in place uh, corrective actions that fix, uh, fix things so that they won't happen again. Um, other times we're finding that the problems are, are really quite complex and are really institutional challenges that we need to take on. But, What's so exciting now is that we have a way of communicating about those and surfacing those risks for the institution. So as, whereas before they used to fly under the radar, now they're on the radar. And I think we have a way and a, a language of beginning to talk about them that um, I'm hoping helps us make better choices moving forward. I, I don't know if that's too vague, but it, it is a, no. yep. it's, it's a challenge. Mm. Mm. For, for the, uh, go ahead, Pat, yep. It's, well, I was going to say, uh, when I reflect back on the, how we started with using these single cases of preventable physical harm, it's interesting that at the same time we were looking at rates of things, right? So we would be looking at rates of central line-associated bloodstream infections, rates of ventilator-associated harms, 
And it, there's one, so you do work to improve the rate, but there's something that's much more motivating about telling the story of that patient who had a central line bloodstream infection because the protocol for inserting the line or the care and feeding of the line was not followed. And sharing that, that person's journey story is much more motivating for change. And we're in an environment now where we're looking at our HCAP scores and we're thinking about like how do you, what else can we ask people to do differently um, and trying to take that same approach where by exposing the real stories, which are very hard to hear, uh, that patients and families experience within our four walls, and we're so proud of the care that we deliver here, but sometimes we just are off the mark. Um, sharing those stories has, is more motivating than looking at the rate on an HCAPS scorecard. Right, um, so absolutely. There's yeah. something about uncovering the systems and how we deliver care that has a, tr it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's excited some movement in areas where we haven't been able to be making strides before. Okay. Wow, lots of really hefty things being brought up here. I'm, uh, I'm uh, trying to imagine uh, programs on all of this. Um, for the person who commented or asked about, you know, dealing with uh, unprofessional disrespect, respectful behavior by physicians, uh, that's probably one we're not going to get into in any big way here. I would encourage you to take a look at the program at Vanderbilt University, um, and uh, that's, that's a very strong, uh, so Jerry Hickson, uh, and we can throw that link in here uh, or get it on our resource document. Um, I think I want to start with you, Frank, and then anyone else who wants to chime in. I'm seeing a number of comments that reflect, well, it's, it's good. I'm glad people are sort of raising these things. So one is, is that what kind of guidance uh, maybe do patients need about what's expected of them, people are sort of saying when they're in the hospital, uh, respecting the staff, uh, caring for them. Um, it's clear that some people feel that there's a, you know, there's this idea, some people think it's more myth than reality, but I, I want to take it seriously that there's uh, people feel uh, that they've been disrespected if somebody is suggesting if they don't get what they want and that people demand things, patience as it were. So let me start with you, Frank, because this must come up uh, in many of the things that you work on and teach that there is a, while we're talking about patient perception and patient experience, um, you know, is there another side to the story? So, yeah, thank you, Madge. And, and there is another side to the story. There's always two sides to the stories. Uh, the first thing I think that we need to be thinking about is what we've been pushing for and we've learned from many of our strategic partners that as we develop our processes, we should be co-developing. That is, we should be doing things with our patients. Any improvement efforts, any work that we do, really take the voice of the patient in designing the system right up front so that we are understanding better what the patient expects and what the patient needs. Now, there is the role of managing expectations is that, for example, in pain management, working with some surgeons, uh, patients expect to be totally pain-free after surgery. And how do you work with them to present the information to understand that we will manage your pain as best possible, but it will not be totally pain-free because you've had surgery and it's going to take some time. So I, I guess it's the response that we have to these folks is also really important that we don't belittle or don't discount what they fear or what they need. 
We also do have an obligation because we as clinicians have a higher level of learning about situations that we maybe should explain to them why it's a particular type of treatment or a particular medication may not be the best for the condition that they have. Uh, we have a lot of direct-to-consumer marketing now that's directed for to patients to go out and ask your doctor for this when, in effect, maybe that medication is just not appropriate. Uh, so it has to be as you would respectfully discuss this with anybody else. And ultimately, it's still the patient's decision. They can still choose to go elsewhere. But unless we approach this in a way that we are looking at common interests where the patient wants to feel better and you as a clinician want to offer the patient a good treatment plan, then together we can come to a solution. Otherwise, it becomes this defensive battle on both sides, and that's where you wind up with disrespect. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Frank. Erica, I'm curious what you think and whether this comes up in discussion, that somehow it's a two-way street and uh, there may be some things that are going on with patients and families, you know, where what they're experiencing as uh, somebody not treating them fairly really has to do with maybe uh, even a disagreement over treatment. I'm, you know, um, I, I do believe that that does happen, and I do believe that there are patients that um, have a different expectation or they come in and they might have mental health issues that um, maybe the, their care team aren't even aware of and they're acting in anger or perhaps they had a bad experience um, in the hospital and they have um, post-traumatic stress disorder and they don't even, their care team doesn't, realize this and so that they're acting out. So I do think that it is a two-way street. And um, as uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center is doing, they are bringing patients and family advisors to the table to help develop this program from the ground up. And I think that that's what has to happen in all endeavors. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Erica. So, Lauga and Pat, I guess as you parse the information or get feedback from clinicians or others, uh, does this issue, I don't want to make too much of it, but does this issue resonate as one that you're also uh, grappling with? Yeah, this is Lauga. I, I, definitely. I mean, I think this is, um, in many ways, this is getting to the core of the, the relationship between health professionals and patients and family members. Um, we uh, are, you know, our, our work is based upon a, a, a contract of trust in many ways, and um, I think people come to health institutions uh, expecting to be treated with respect, um, uh, knowing that they may need to make themselves vulnerable um, and not feeling well because they're sick. And we, uh, as I think uh, Frank has described so nicely, have have that obligation to uh, to do that. And sometimes it is very difficult. Sometimes it's very challenging. There are a lot of we as, as health professionals, um, I as a physician, we bring things to the table ourselves. Maybe we had a rough day at home. Um, maybe we have our, our own stressors. And so too do our patients and families bring those things to our encounters. So I think um, as we dive into these cases, we try to bring that spirit of learning and openness and, and humility and recognize that we, we probably all have some work to do to improve the way we work together. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, somebody is asking, and I think this might be kind of a good pivot at this moment, uh, about, uh, gee, 
how could they bring this work <laughs> uh, or get this on the radar screen of some providers for whom it's not and, and get this into their organization? And I guess that's a question of about, um, I know you've been talking about this work in articles uh, at conferences recently, our forum, and here we are, uh, lucky us on WIHI. Uh, are other organizations trying to kind of pick up on this right now? Uh, and uh, what are any any kinds of suggestions about how you get something started? Mm -hmm. So, um, you, thank you, Madge. This is Pat, and we have definitely um, been getting a lot of interest and um, queries to us here at the medical center just about how to get started. And as you said, doing some work with IHI. Um, who has been so supportive to us, I'll say, really for many, many years. I know Frank started by saying that, but the resources have helped us uh, over our 10 years, really, of moving our work forward. One of the things I, when people ask me about an, uh, how do they start, I would say one of the ways that we started, even before we started doing this in, with this level of rigor, is that we began to tell the story. So if you have a meeting already in your institution where you're looking at the patient experience, to open the, open the meeting with the story of a patient experience that, was, it, that will make you feel uncomfortable and will make the people in the room feel uncomfortable. So something that really happened within your four walls that was either disrespectful communication uh, or disrespectful coordination of care or disrespectful management at the end of life, um, or failure to communicate with the patient after an adverse event in a respectful way. Um, by starting to just, and this doesn't take any big program, it just starts laying the groundwork by sharing the stories. Um, and it sets the tone for a meeting that's more reverent and focused. So I would say that's an easy way to start. We. Um, we, the other thing is we, were, we, we benefit a bit from our structure, although I don't think that this is completely insurmountable if you're not structured this way, where we have the patient relations team who's not tucked away in a separate department, but actually part of the same department where adverse events are reviewed. So they work in the same proximity, same office space, sharing back and forth stories of patients that either have physical harm events and then they are helpful in closing the loop with the communication with those patients and following them over time. Okay. Or, um, you know, so I think the structure has helped us as well in terms of being really uh, pushing the communication agenda altogether. I don't know, Lauga, if you have anything else that you would add. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a great way to, to think about it. And I, I think, um, for example, when we discuss our physical harm events, one of the routine questions that now gets asked is, uh, what communication has occurred with the patient and family? Are they aware that we think that this was a preventable event? Um, who is talking with them? What are we doing to attend to the emotional side of this event for everyone involved? And similarly asking, um, are the clinicians that, that, that were involved, have they, um, has a peer supporter reached out to them? What are we doing to support them? I think beginning to ask those very important questions um, can begin to open eyes to the fact that there's another side to all of this that we need to attend to. Mm -hmm. That sounds good. John? Yeah, Madge, uh, let me pull the microphone over a little bit closer. 
Um, so if you were interested in the talk about patient safety and harm today, we wanted to let you know about an upcoming program. It's an iChai Quick Course, which is a one-day low-cost uh, top content from the iChai National Forum. Um, it's about practice, practical skills in patient safety tools. Um, improvement requires the correct diagnosis of the problem and the connection uh, to the right tools to, uh, to, to make improvements. And so during this quick course, participants will learn how to use several tools that will help them diagnose quickly and safely in their respective organizations and connect those tools with improvement. Um, and if you like learning from Frank today, you'll love learning from Frank um, at this quick course. It's being held Wednesday, March 29th in Seattle at the uh, Waterfront Marriott. And for more information, visit IHI.org slash quickcourses. All right. Thanks so much, John. All right. We're going to start wrapping up. I really want to make sure, though, ask you this very practical question, folks at BI. Uh, your preventable harm scorecard, is this generated separately in Excel or is it a product of the reporting program which you use? Bianca, oh. I'm sorry I didn't get to that earlier. <laughs> it's, a se it's separately in Excel. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Thank you very much on that. Um, all right, let's just quickly go around the horn um, and uh, horn and uh, just kind of wrap some things up here. Um, uh, I guess, uh, Erica, and anything in particular? Is, thank you so much uh, for your participation. It's so good that you're here. Um, anything uh, as you look ahead of things that you hope to gain from this work and kind of look ahead. Sounds like you're, you've got a projects uh, going. So uh, and anything new that we should uh, be following? Um, I, I think stay tuned. I think there's a lot more that Beth Vigil uh, Deaconess has in store for, for us in terms of uh, paving the way. All right. Well, thank you for being a part of that and for taking uh, part in our show today. Uh, Lauga and uh, Pat, um, what what's on the horizon? Sounds like you you know you're you're deep into this right now. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, we we are deep into it. It's very exciting. And um, as Erica alluded to, we were very fortunate this past summer to uh, be able to convene a, a large group of folks interested in this work. Um, Frank was there. Um, uh, to talk about it, and we are in the midst of pulling together a, a consensus statement about that work and hope that that will come out uh, sometime in this summer. So that might be something to look at for institutions that are interested in engaging in the practice of respect. Um, and, and we would love to hear from other folks who are thinking about engaging in this. Um, feel free to contact us. We're happy to provide our, our experience um, and would love to hear about it spreading if, if you choose to engage. All right. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. Thank you so much, Lauga. Uh, Pat, anything you want to add? No, I think I would just add it's okay to, to start small. Start with the story um, and um, not, not to be intimidated by doing it. Like strong spine, good story. It's a, it's a great way to motivate change. I love that, strong spine, good story. I'm, I'm going to take that for me. Uh, thank you, uh, Pat uh, Focarelli. So appreciative of your time today. And Frank, any uh, parting words here um, as, you know, we continue to, in some ways, the terrain gets more complicated, but it also uh, portends for being more effective, <laughs> what we're doing. Absolutely, Madge. You know, we've made the target of patient safety and harm reduction bigger. However, this is the right thing to do for patients. And I just want to add one comment. Um, 
that one thing that's really important to do is as you be, bring new people into work, start from the very first day explaining what this means to you and to your patients and what you have to do. Several of the folks in our patient safety officer program have suggested that they do it at orientation. And I think we need to make sure we're doing it at the colleges of pharmacy, medicine, nursing. We really get to get through the open school to get these folks to take the courses and understand. Because if we can start with the attitude from the very beginning, it'll be much easier for us to continue to develop the momentum. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Frank, as well. So I want to really thank all our panelists for your time today and uh, for breaking away from looking out the window at rather whiteout conditions, <laughs> but <laughs> hopefully it's in the 70s or 80s somewhere. and in, in Somewhere. Somewhere, it has to be. Um, so I want to thank our wonderful audience and all your comments in the chat as well. A reminder that when you, I see it, yes, sunny always in Florida and Los Angeles. Okay. <laughs> so when you, uh, you know, log off this WebEx, you're prompted, you know, do you want to download the materials and absolutely do so if you'd like. You can also find all of them on IHI.org uh, tomorrow. Um, I want to tell you that next up on WIHI in two weeks, on February 23rd, we're going to be talking about quality improvement in communities led by community organizations themselves. Some very exciting work going on in very different locations, and I hope you'll tune in for that. Uh, again, as I said, you can download the chat. You can find it all tomorrow. If you have any questions whatsoever, uh, please uh, email info at IHI.org, and don't forget uh, in addition to listening to the audio on IHI.org, you can listen to it as a podcast on iTunes or your favorite provider there. Uh, the people who help make WIHI possible, some of them are in the room right now, uh, and that includes John Gothier and Vicki Minden, and then there are others that you are maybe not as familiar with today, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Stephanie Gary Garfunkel, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Haley Ladd. And as always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs>